the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, March 25th, 2022, the 429th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. So yesterday, True the Vote appeared before the Wisconsin Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections to give testimony about the evidence they have found of a ballot harvesting scheme in Wisconsin and other states that was being run under the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which is the organization that Mark Zuckerberg funneled somewhere between 300 and $500 million into the 2020 election and the 2021 runoff in Georgia. And that number for Zuckerberg's contribution has been all over the map. I've heard 350 million. I've heard half a billion. Trump continues to say 417 million. Perhaps that's correct. But yesterday's episode was a little late because I was watching that hearing. I missed the first hour. And so I didn't really want to talk about it yesterday. And I was hoping that in that first hour I had missed They addressed what their whistleblowers had communicated to them and maybe shared some of the evidence of what the whistleblowers had told them. But that didn't happen. And so that was a bit disappointing. And it's possible that we were just oversold on what that hearing yesterday would be and that it was overhyped a bit by Jefferson Davis, who was the spokesperson for the ad hoc committee on election integrity, or it's possible that they held back on bringing up the whistleblowers for some other strategic reason that I am unaware of. So I want to just give a brief summary of what happened. And this comes from Liberty Overwatch on Telegram and the Liberty Overwatch channel always does great coverage on all of these. It's definitely worth following them if you are following the election integrity issue. This is what they had to say. Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips of True the Vote presented testimony about their investigation into ballot trafficking in Wisconsin's 2020 election. It was not the most secure election ever. It was quite possibly one of the least. Engelbrecht began. We've watched the mass mail out of paper ballots to highly inaccurate voter records, she continued. The harried installation of 
by mail, absentee ballot drop boxes, privately funded by billionaire tech magnets, and the hundreds of legislative changes, lawsuits, consent decrees, all that fundamentally altered election processes. And all of this came together in 2020 under the fog of COVID. It's hard not to look at the confluence of events and come away with any conclusion other than that it was planned. True the Vote formed a working hypothesis in part from informant testimonies across the country, Engelbrecht explained. It went something like this. If nonprofit groups being funded by CTCL and others were going to exploit weaknesses in our election process, then the exploitation would likely involve mail ballots, which are notoriously insecure, and the newly introduced and highly unregulated absentee ballot drop boxes. It turns out that WEC, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, did not follow through with its stated commitment to CISA's guidelines for Dropbox security, and that's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency that Chris Krebs used to head, the man who signed on to the letter and then repeated the claim that the 2020 election was the safest and most secure election in history. Open records requests confirmed that there was no Dropbox surveillance video available for review in any municipality in Wisconsin except Brown Deer. So True the Vote shifted to commercially available cell phone data. Now, all of those Dropboxes were supposed to have 24-hour video surveillance that would serve as election evidence and, by that standard, should be maintained for 22 months. But, of course, they asked the Legislative Council, one of the Assemblyman asked the Legislative Council in the Assembly what the rules were on that. And it turns out that there wasn't a rule addressing that specifically, which means that, yeah, they completely went around election law. But you see, there's nothing that we can really go after them for because we didn't have a specific rule about this very strange and new thing they just decided to do without authority. So sorry. Them's the breaks. You have an illegitimate president and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Apparently, the founders just messed up in the Constitution and all legal arguments that say otherwise are null and void. And that is the new tactic for people who do not want to decertify the 2020 election. They just simply say, yes, there was fraud, but we can't do anything about it. Robin Voss, the House Speaker in Wisconsin last week said that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election, widespread fraud, but they can't do anything. They need a new AG. They need a new governor. And the way we're going to get those is through elections that are going to be similarly fraudulent, but you guys just all have to deal with it. Don't you understand? The group used cutting edge geofence technology to be able to track cell phones within a few inches. To put the sophistication of the technology into perspective, Phillips quoted Georgetown law professor Paul Ohm, who said DNA is the only thing harder to anonymize than precise geolocation data. So basically, they know that's your cell phone. They know where you are and they can track your pattern of movement. True the Vote purchased 10 trillion cell signals in Arizona, Georgia, Texas, Wisconsin, Detroit, Michigan, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In Wisconsin, 
the group looked at 1.1 trillion signals, representing 421,000 unique devices, 20 terabytes of data. During the period from October 1st to November 8th of 2020, which encompassed several weeks before early voting began on October 20th. This allowed True the Vote to build a pre-election pattern of life to help identify the ballot trafficking mules. The team then narrowed down the surveillance to individuals that visited at least five NGO offices and 26 drop boxes during the early voting period a pattern that was contrary to their previous daily activity. 138 people in Milwaukee, Racine, and Green Bay fit that profile. These individuals made 3,568 visits to drop boxes during the 2020 election. So they were all pretty busy. That's about 26 trips per person. Could you imagine going to a ballot drop box 26 times? For a legal reason? Like what would have to happen for that? You wouldn't get enough likes on your first Instagram post next to the Dropbox? Trying to be like Jennifer Aniston? There are five key components to the ballot trafficking hypothesis, Phillips summarized. Inaccurate voter rolls, mass mail ballots, NGOs, privately funded Dropboxes, and money. By following the money, Phillips said, True the Vote has uncovered a nationwide grift around voting in which not-for-profits orchestrated paid ballot collection, ballot preparation, and harvested ballot delivery operations. The group estimates that at least 7% of all mail-in ballots, 138,000 in Wisconsin, 4.8 million nationwide, were trafficked during the 2020 election. This was an organized crime that was perpetrated on Americans, Phillips emphasized. During the Q&A session, Phillips mentioned that while True the Vote has the names of the five NGOs and 138 individuals, they are unable to release that information due to an active legal investigation. Engelbrecht concluded by reiterating that ballot drop boxes, mass mail-in ballots, and dirty voter rolls are the gateway to fraud in our elections. States must commit to eliminating these sources of fraud and the penalties for cheating must be severe, she said. Now, if you were listening carefully, you would have heard that Catherine Engelbrecht gave a nod to the whistleblowers, to the informants, when she mentioned that informant testimonies were part of how they formed their working hypothesis. So we didn't get too much information on that yesterday, but it seems like that is very much in play. And it seems like they understand the organizational structure just based on the fact that they are aware of the five NGOs that these 138 ballot mules kept returning to. So it's fairly simple to track their funding. And it sounds like they have tracked that funding directly back to Mark Zuckerberg's Center for Tech and Civic Life. And so what they have is proof of a criminal conspiracy to steal the 2020 election. You know, we go from no evidence of fraud to then substantial evidence of fraud. And now you layer on intentionality and the organization, a conspiracy to commit voter fraud. And that is what we ultimately have. And I imagine that 
information will continue to come out. There's the Dinesh D'Souza documentary coming, 2,000 Mules. And that should lay all of this out in a way that even normies understand. So another big thing that happened yesterday that I mentioned briefly is that Donald Trump filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and a slew of other co-defendants, which similarly aims at an enterprise of crime, a criminal enterprise, not one person committing an isolated crime, an organization of people perpetuating many crimes in order to achieve a similar goal. And the case is ultimately a civil RICO case. Boris Epstein was on War Room in the afternoon yesterday discussing the case a bit, and he said that it was essentially Donald Trump saying, we're not going to take it anymore. And that may well have been a nod to the significance of Twisted Sisters song within certain segments of the Donald Trump supporter base. But I want to share the introduction to this lawsuit just so that everybody is familiar with what it is. And I'd encourage you, if you have the interest, to actually read the full suit. I especially encourage that if you think that your understanding of the Trump-Russia collusion hoax and everything that surrounded it is kind of hazy. Because this basically takes all of the information that we've gleaned from reporters and filings from the Durham case and Kleinsmith and Sussman and Danchenko, all of those stories, it kind of boils all of this down and combines it into this one document. And it's 108 pages long, so it's not like a 10 minute read, but it's not more than an hour or so. It reads quickly. And if you're familiar with reading lawsuits at all, you'll notice that there are repeated phrases that you can just completely skip over as you move through it. And going quickly through it will give you a real solid understanding of exactly what's at play and how large this thing was. So he filed it in the Southern District of Florida. It looks like a Bill Clinton appointed judge was assigned to the case. And that just is what it is. We'll see how that goes. The attorneys for the defendants will certainly motion to dismiss. And if the case does not get dismissed, then things get very interesting. If it does, perhaps there's an appeal or something else possible. But no matter what, this thing has been filed. The information is out there. The information can be verified through a number of different sources if you feel like doing the investigating for yourself. So the defendants here in this case, are Hillary Clinton, Hillary for America, which is the Clinton campaign, the Democrat National Committee, the corporation DNC Services Corporation that works in alignment with the DNC, Perkins Coie, the law firm, Michael Sussman, Mark Elias, who is basically the election fraud attorney and Clinton's hatchet man, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Charles Dolan, Jake Sullivan, who right now is the fake president's fake national security advisor, John Podesta, Robbie Mook from the Clinton campaign, Philip Rines, 
Fusion GPS, which is the company led by Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, who are also named. They were involved in the procurement of the fraudulent steel dossier. Nelly and Bruce Orr, Orbis Business Intelligence, which is Christopher Steele's company. Christopher Steele is also named individually. Igor Danchenko, New Star Incorporated, which is Rodney Joffe's technology company. Rodney Joffe is also named individually. James Comey, the former director of the FBI. Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, former FBI officials who were involved in this matter, also involved in an intimate affair. And they were the ones who exchanged the text messages about how Donald Trump would never be president. They had an insurance policy. They wouldn't allow it to happen. Kevin Kleinsmith, who has already been indicted and then convicted and then let off for nothing with a slap on the wrist. Andrew McCabe, and then a series of John Doe's and unnamed corporations. And that stuff could get very interesting, especially if some of those companies end up being the legacy social media companies, the big tech firms, because in their own ways, they were involved in all of this as well. So here's the introduction. In the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton and her cohorts orchestrated an unthinkable plot, one that shocks the conscience and is an affront to this nation's democracy. Acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty. The actions taken in furtherance of their scheme, falsifying evidence, deceiving law enforcement, and exploiting access to highly sensitive data sources are so outrageous, subversive, and incendiary that even the events of Watergate pale in comparison. And that is exactly right. This is another level. And remember, this is all done with the knowledge of Barack Obama and Joe Biden, who were president and vice president at the time. They are not named in this case. Under the guise of opposition research, data analytics and other political stratagems, the defendants nefariously sought to sway the public's trust. They worked together with a single self-serving purpose to vilify Donald J. Trump. Indeed, their far-reaching conspiracy was designed to cripple Trump's bid for presidency by fabricating a scandal that would be used to trigger an unfounded federal investigation and ignite a media frenzy. The scheme was conceived, coordinated, and carried out by top-level officials at the Clinton campaign and the DNC, including the candidate herself, who attempted to shield her involvement behind a wall of third parties. To start, the Clinton campaign and the DNC enlisted the assistance of their shared counsel, Perkins Coie, a law firm with deep Democrat ties in the hopes of obscuring their actions under the veil of attorney-client privilege. Perkins Coie was tasked with spearheading the scheme to find or fabricate proof of a sinister link between Donald Trump and Russia. To do so, Perkins Coie launched parallel operations on one front. Perkins Coie partner Mark Elias led an effort to produce spurious opposition research, claiming to reveal illicit ties between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives. On a separate front, Perkins Coie partner Michael Sussman headed a campaign to develop misleading evidence of a bogus back channel connection between email servers at Trump Tower and a Russian owned bank. 
Mark Elias, in his mission to obtain derogatory anti-Trump opposition research, commissioned Fusion GPS, an investigative firm, and its co-founders, Peter Fritsch and Glenn Simpson, and directed them to dredge up evidence, actual or otherwise, of collusion between Trump and Russia. Fritsch and Simpson, in turn, enlisted the assistance of Orbis Limited and its owner, Christopher Steele, to produce a series of reports purporting to contain proof of the supposed collusion. Of course, the now fully debunked collection of reports known as the Steele dossier was riddled with misstatements, misrepresentations, and most of all, flat out lies. In truth, the Steele dossier was largely based upon information provided to Steele by his primary subsource, Igor Danchenko, who was subsequently indicted for falsifying his claims. Even more damning, Danchenko had close ties to senior Clinton campaign official Charles Halliday Dolan Jr., who knowingly provided false information to Danchenko, who related to Steele, who reported it in the Steele dossier and eagerly fed the deceptions to both the media and the FBI. This duplicitous arrangement existed for a singular self-serving purpose to discredit Donald J. Trump and his campaign. At the same time, Michael Sussman, in his hunt for damaging intel against the Trump campaign, turned to New Star Incorporated, an information technology company, and one of its top executives, Rodney Jaffe, a fervent anti-Trumper who had recently been promised a high-ranking position with the Clinton administration to exploit their access to non-public data in search of a secret back-channel connection between Trump Tower and Alpha Bank. When it was discovered that no such channel existed, the defendants resorted to truly subversive measures, hacking servers at Trump Tower, Trump's private apartment, and most alarmingly, the White House. This ill-gotten data was then manipulated to create a misleading inference and submitted to law enforcement in an effort to falsely implicate Donald J. Trump and his campaign. All of these acts were carried out in coordination with the Clinton campaign and the DNC at the behest of certain Democratic VIPs. And an interesting thing about this lawsuit is that it routinely cites the Durham indictments. This is all highly connected. While their multi-pronged attack was underway, the defendants seized on the opportunity to publicly malign Donald J. Trump by instigating a full-blown media frenzy. Indeed, the Clinton campaign and DNC, admittedly on a mission to raise the alarm about their contrived Trump-Russia link, repeatedly fed disinformation to the media and shamelessly promoted their false narratives. All the while, Hillary Clinton, Jake Sullivan, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others did their best to proliferate the spread of those dubious and false claims through press releases, social media and other public statements. The fallout from the defendant's action was not limited to the public denigration of Trump and his campaign. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, relying on the defendant's fraudulent evidence, commenced a large-scale investigation and expended precious time, resources, and taxpayer dollars looking into the spurious allegation that the Trump campaign had colluded with the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. The effects of this unfounded investigation were prolonged and exacerbated by the presence of a small faction of Clinton loyalists who were well positioned within the Department of Justice and the FBI. James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Kevin Kleinsmith and Bruce Orr. 
These government officials were willing to abuse their positions of public trust to advance the baseless probe to new levels, including obtaining an extrajudicial FISA warrant and instigating the commencement of an oversight investigation headed by special counsel Robert Mueller. As a result, Donald J. Trump and his campaign were forced to expend tens of millions of dollars in legal fees to defend against these contrived and unwarranted proceedings. Justice would ultimately prevail following a two-year investigation. Special counsel Robert Mueller went on to exonerate Donald J. Trump and his campaign with his finding that there was no evidence of collusion with Russia. The full extent of the defendant's wrongdoing has been steadily and gradually exposed by special counsel John Durham, who has been heading a DOJ investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia conspiracy. To date, he has already issued indictments to Sussman and Danchenko, among others, for proffering false statements to law enforcement officials. As outlined below, these speaking indictments not only implicate many of the defendants named herein, but also provide a great deal of insight into the inner workings of the defendant's conspiratorial enterprise. Based on recent developments and the overall direction of Durham's investigation, it seems all but certain that additional indictments are forthcoming. In short, the defendants, blinded by political ambition, orchestrated a malicious conspiracy to disseminate patently false and injurious information about Donald J. Trump and his campaign, all in the hopes of destroying his life, his political career, and rigging the 2016 presidential election in favor of Hillary Clinton. When their gambit failed and Donald J. Trump was elected, the defendants' efforts continued unabated, merely shifting their focus to undermining his presidential administration. Worse still, the defendants continue to spread their vicious lies to this day as they unabashedly publicize their thoroughly debunked falsehoods in an effort to ensure that he will never be elected again. The deception, malice, and treachery perpetrated by the defendants has caused significant harm to the American people and to the plaintiff, Donald J. Trump, and they must be held accountable for their heinous acts. And so that's the introduction. The Rest of the case goes on to obviously lay out each one of the defendants, what their job was at the time, how they're connected to all of this and their role in it. And then it lays out all the evidence in support of all the claims you just heard in that introduction, very specific evidence and how that evidence supports the claim that this was a broad conspiracy to commit crimes to achieve certain goals valued by the enterprise. So let's move to Ukraine. Well, no, let's not move there. That would be terrible right now. Although who knows, maybe in five years, once the Nazis are gone and things start stop exploding, maybe it'll be lovely. It does look like a beautiful country. But let's just move on in this episode of the podcast to Ukraine. Joe Biden was in Poland today and he was having photo ops with various troops in Poland. And he said this. So, you know, with the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts. And I'm sure you're observing it. And I don't mean just the military, which is we've been trained in since back when they, uh, Russia moved into uh, in, in the southeast, southeast um, Ukraine. But also the average citizen. Look at how they're stepping up. Look at how they're stepping up. 
And you're going to see when you're there, and you, some, some of you have been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women, young people standing, standing in the middle of the front of a damn tank, just, just saying, I'm not leaving. I'm holding my ground. They're incredible. We've been training troops in Ukraine since 2014. Oh, isn't that the year that we also overthrew their government in a coup? And What troops were we training there exactly? Was this, are you talking about when the CIA was training their neo-Nazi battalions? Yeah, you probably are, huh, Joe? And that's not even the crazy part. The crazy part is when he told those soldiers, you'll see when you get there. Now, the fake president was an idiot on his best days, and now he has dementia. So, Maybe he was just saying the wrong thing, or maybe they already have plans to send American troops to Ukraine. And demented idiot Joe Biden just revealed that to the world by accident. And of course, we we know that some number of American soldiers are on the ground there. We're being told that they're all volunteers for the Foreign Legion. There's no reason to actually believe that, but that's what they're saying. Biden has promised that there would not be boots on the ground in Ukraine. But as we're all aware, the goal is escalation, and this is the sort of thing that could escalate. Biden also said this. uh, I can't see it firsthand like I have in other places. They will not let me understandably, I guess, it across the border and take a look at what's going on in uh, in Ukraine. But, uh, you know, I'm eager to hear from you and the humanitarian community about what you see, what you're doing, and uh, um, where you think we go from here, because you're doing it every day. As been pointed out, 10 million people have been displaced thus far. So they won't let him cross the border into Ukraine, and it's certainly got nothing to do with the fact that he and his family have a staggering history of crime and corruption in Ukraine. That's not the reason he's just not allowed to go cross over the border. Otherwise, he would totally want to. I mean, Joe Biden is very spry and very military. I'm surprised he's not there just showing how tough he is. I'm surprised he's not there literally handing out weapons to Ukrainian citizens so that they can beat back the Russian marauders. And he really wants to check on the humanitarian progress. 10 million people, he just said, have now left Ukraine. I mean, okay, but where'd you get that number? Yesterday, the discussion was about a billion dollars going to humanitarian aid in Ukraine and a hundred thousand Ukrainians being welcomed into America. But we know when they say humanitarian aid, basically, they just mean they're going to funnel a billion dollars through usually Soros run NGOs and that money just up and disappears. And when they say they want to bring refugees in from that country, we've had the experience of them letting hundreds of thousands of people a month across the southern border from Mexico into America. We've had the experience of watching them bring 
refugees, in quotes, from Afghanistan into America. All of these completely unvetted. And of course, they will be from Ukraine as well. And you got to wonder, are you extracting Nazi assets from Ukraine and bringing them to America like you all did at the end of World War Two? Are they going to make new spaceships? Are they going to say, hey, if we didn't have this NASA space program with Nazis in it, you wouldn't have a microwave. But I'm a conspiracy theorist. Everything is OK because it's for the science. As long as you can say it's for the science at the end of the day, it's OK. Same thing if you call it humanitarian. We know there's something very bad going on in Ukraine. We know that people like Biden voters would never want to stick around and actually fight for their country. They would escape, too. They totally understand the motivation of these refugees, and they're already supporting Nazis. They've already rationalized and justified that to themselves. So it's no problem if some of these hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees are Nazis. The point isn't actually saving the world. The point is seeming like you're saving the world without doing anything. So yesterday we went through the piece on just the news about Obama, Biden and Clinton corruption in Ukraine, but that wasn't the end of it. National Pulse released this yesterday, and some of this information has already been put out there by Garrett Ziegler's Marco Polo, but it's starting to bubble up to the surface. Tucker Carlson reported on this last night, which was huge because he has a massive audience, and that means that small stories or what we thought were small stories. They're actually huge stories, but they only exist like in our far fringes of the internet because we're so fringe. Hunter Biden bio firm partnered with Ukrainian researchers isolating deadly pathogens using funds from Obama's defense department. That's the headline in National Pulse. An investment firm directed by President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was a leading financial backer of a pandemic tracking and response firm that collaborated on identifying and isolating deadly pathogens in Ukrainian laboratories, receiving funds from the Obama administration's Department of Defense in the process. The National Pulse can exclusively reveal. And I don't know why they say exclusively. This is not exclusive. Rosemont Seneca Technology Partners, a subsidiary of the Hunter Biden and Christopher Hines founded Rosemont Capital, counted both Biden and Hines as managing directors. Hines is the stepson of former U.S. Secretary of State and current climate czar John Kerry. Among the companies listed on archived versions of the RSTP's portfolio is Metabiota an ostensibly San Francisco-based company that purports to detect, track, and analyze emerging infectious diseases. Financial reports reveal that RSTP led the company's first round of funding in 2015, which amounted to $30 million. Former managing director and co-founder of RSTP, Neil Callahan, a name that also appears many times on Hunter Biden's hard drive, sits on Metabiota's board of advisors alongside former Clinton official Rob Walker, who discussed in another unearthed Hunter Biden hard drive email, reaching out to the Obama Department of Defense with regard to Metabiota. 
In July 2021, the National Pulse exclusively revealed the connection between Metabiota, Hunter Biden, and the pandemic-linked EcoHealth Alliance, which worked closely with Anthony Fauci's National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease and the notorious Wuhan Laboratory. Today, we can exclusively reveal an official connection between the Biden-linked pandemic firm and biological laboratories based in Ukraine. In early March, we revealed how these labs were handling especially dangerous pathogens through programs funded by the U.S. government. The potential for such entities to fall into the hands of invading Russian forces has come under hotly disputed scrutiny in recent weeks. A feature in the Science and Technology Center in Ukraine's 2016 annual report recounts a trilateral meeting with Ukraine, Poland, and the United States Regional Collaboration on Biological Security, Safety, and Surveillance. The article describes, in particular, an October 2016 meeting involving U.S. military officials and their Ukrainian counterparts discussing, quote, cooperation in surveillance and prevention of especially dangerous infectious diseases, including zoonotic diseases in Ukraine and neighboring countries, end quote. In attendance were representatives from the Biden-linked Metabiota, roughly one year after Hunter's investment funds put cash into the company. Attendees also included members of the U.S. Department of Defense, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, Black and Veatch, and Metabiota Corporations, and members of the Science and Technology Center in Ukraine. The meeting focused on existing frameworks, regulatory coordination, and ongoing cooperative projects in research, surveillance, and diagnostics of a number of dangerous zoonotic diseases, such as avian influenza, leptospirosis, Crimea-Congo hemorrhagic fever, and brucellosis, explains the summary. A separate page from the STCU website details another meeting between Metabiota representatives, Ukrainian scientists, and U.S. Department of Defense officials aimed at increasing collaboration while attending a swine fever workshop just months later. In the framework of the workshop, special breakout meetings of Ukrainian scientists with their European and American counterparts were jointly organized by the STCU DTRA, that's the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and Metabiota Incorporated. During those breakout meetings, specialists from each country worked to establish effective contacts in order to encourage future cooperation, as well as to identify future scientific projects with Ukrainian and Western veterinary institutions in the area of ASF control and investigation. Government contracts also corroborate the working relationship between Metabiota, Ukrainian laboratories, and the U.S. Defense Department, with the firm receiving an $18.4 million grant from the U.S. agency in 2014. A total of $307,091 allocated to Metabiota on September 25th was itemized for Ukraine research projects. And isn't that amazing? Everything in Ukraine always happens to start in 2014. Well, some of the things start in 2005, the original coup. Several scientific papers, including those isolating strains of deadly pathogens like virulent African swine fever virus, appear to have been published following the grant. A 2019 paper titled Complete Genome Sequence 
of a virulent African swine fever virus from a domestic pig in Ukraine was authored by researchers from Metabiota and three Ukraine-based institutes. The researchers, whose work is described as being funded by the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency through the Biological Threat Reduction Program in Ukraine, isolated the strain of the deadly virus using a pig from Ukraine. And they quote some of this paper. Tissue samples were collected from a domestic pig from ASF outbreak number 131 in Kiev Oblast, Ukraine in 2016. The samples were frozen and total DNA was extracted in duplicate from spleen tissue using the Power Microbiome RNA Isolation Kit following the manufacturer's protocol. Furthermore, a 2014 paper, Spatiotemporal Patterns of Livestock Anthrax in Ukraine During the Past Century, lists an author, Artem Skirpnik, then affiliated with a Ukraine-based branch of the pandemic firm. Our primary objective was to examine the spatiotemporal dynamics of the disease and identify areas where anthrax may persist in the present day, posits the paper. Examining the historical epizootiology of a disease can identify the geographic extent of environmental foci, define areas prone to repeat outbreaks, and lead to a better understanding of natural disease cycles. Skripnik is also listed as a metabiota scientist in other papers, including dynamics of anthrax cases in Ukraine during 1970 to 2013, anthrax in dogs, and serological anthrax surveillance in wild boar in Ukraine. One paper aimed, quote, to better understand anthrax epizootiology in Ukraine, collecting samples from anthrax hotspots with funds from the U.S. DTRA's Cooperative Biological Engagement Program in Ukraine. We test wild boar serum samples collected across Ukraine for antibodies to B. anthracis and determined whether exposed boars were associated with livestock anthrax hotspots, explains the paper. And I wonder if their tests were as good as they are for COVID. Skirpnik, the Metabiota-affiliated researcher, worked as a veterinary project coordinator for the Biden-linked firm before moving on to serve in his current role of technical officer for laboratories for the World Health Organization. Additionally, two researchers, Natalia Mikhailovska and Bradford Raymond Brooks, are listed as Ukraine-based metabiota researchers in a paper titled Implementation of a Regional Training Program on African Swine Fever as part of the Cooperative Biological Engagement Program across the Caucasus region. The aforementioned paper even references a metabiota office in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev, whose existence appears to be corroborated by a summary of the company's operational structure. The company's international footprint includes operations in 20 countries and offices in San Francisco, Washington, Ukraine, China, Canada, and Sierra Leone, explains the summary. Additionally, LinkedIn profiles of former Metabiota employees detail the work conducted by the company's Kiev outpost. Former country science manager for Eastern Europe, 
David Mustra, explains how he managed Metabiota's team of 12 Ukrainian national personnel and served as the biosurveillance and research manager for Metabiota's work as a subcontractor under the direction of prime contractor Black and Veach on the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Cooperative Biological Engagement Program, Biological Threat Reduction Integrating Contract, Ukraine. He also explains how the company liaised with government of Ukraine officials from agencies, including the Ministry of Defense. Another Metabiota employee, Dr. Petro Mutovkin, who served as a human biosurveillance specialist and project manager from 2015 to 2016, reveals his role in facilitating activities within U.S. Department of Defense Cooperative Biological Engagement Program in Ukraine on his LinkedIn profile. Laboratory facility assessment, laboratory diagnostic and BSNS training and biological risk assessment and mitigation are among the other tasks he engaged in. The revelation surrounding President Joe Biden's son's financial involvement with Ukrainian biological laboratories experimenting with pathogens, animals and anthrax follows the National Pulse unearthing Metabiota's ties to EcoHealth Alliance, a key entity in the origins of COVID-19 and cover-up efforts. Now, we are really starting to get the full picture of what all this is. First, it was, the Wuhan lab is irrelevant. This is a natural virus, this COVID-19. We don't need to look at Wuhan. We don't need to think about Wuhan. All the evidence suggests, not says, but suggests that this virus came from nature. And so anything about the labs was a conspiracy theory. And then the labs were less of a conspiracy theory, but anything having to do with Anthony Fauci funding those labs, well, that's a conspiracy theory. Now, okay, Anthony Fauci did fund EcoHealth Alliance, but that's not the same as funding the Wuhan laboratory, we're told. So that's a conspiracy theory, too. And then you go on down the line and you find out, oh, it was a DARPA program that created COVID-19 in the Wuhan labs with funding from EcoHealth Alliance through the NIAID and the NIH. So it is a Defense Department program of the United States and our public health communities and scientific communities. But that's it. So stop looking, forget about it. Then we move on down the line a little further and Russia's Ministry of Defense and Vladimir Putin begin talking about how they are going after biological laboratories in Ukraine. And that was after the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine started deleting documents about those bio labs. And you got to give a shout out to bio clandestine out there who kind of made this story break on Twitter. And so the censorship began and the labeling of conspiracy theories began. And then Victoria Newland herself came out and told Marco Rubio that we actually do have bio labs there, but they're not bioweapons labs. Although if what's in those labs that are not bioweapons labs happen to fall into the hands of Vladimir Putin, well, it's certainly possible that he could use what's in there as a bioweapon. But these are not bioweapons labs and they're not funded by the Pentagon, except 
you know, they are funded by the Pentagon, but it's not under U.S. supervision. I mean, it is, but not directly. We have companies for that, like Metabiota and Black and & Veatch. And was Hunter Biden directly involved in Metabiota? Yes. <laughs> but if you put all these facts together and think about them at the same time, well, then it becomes a conspiracy theory. And speaking of how these things become conspiracy theories, there was a really excellent piece of journalism in an outlet called Mint Press News this week. This is from March 22nd. Ukraine's propaganda war, international PR firms, D.C. lobbyists and CIA cutouts. This is Dan Cohen. Since the Russian offensive inside Ukraine commenced on February 24th, the Ukrainian military has cultivated the image of a plucky little army standing up to the Russian Goliath to bolster the perception of Ukrainian military metal. Kiev has churned out a steady stream of sophisticated propaganda aimed at stirring public and official support from Western countries. The campaign includes language guides, key messages, and hundreds of propaganda posters, some of which contain fascist imagery and even praise neo-Nazi leaders. Behind Ukraine's public relations effort is an army of foreign political strategists, Washington, D.C. lobbyists, and a network of intelligence-linked media outlets. Ukraine's propaganda strategy earned it praise from a NATO commander who told the Washington Post, quote, they are really excellent in stratcom, media, info ops, and also psyops, end quote. The Post ultimately conceded that, quote, Western officials say that while they cannot independently verify much of the information that Kiev puts out about the evolving battlefield situation, including casualty figures for both sides, it nonetheless represents highly effective stratcom. You got that? Western officials cannot verify any of this information, but it's still really good strategic communications. And that's very reassuring. We don't know if any of it is true, but we do know that it's effective. Now, if you're going to challenge such an effective narrative that we are producing, you at least have to have some evidence. And if you have evidence of everything, well, then we'll just call it a conspiracy theory and we're going to make sure no one believes you. Key to the propaganda effort is an international legion of public relations firms working directly with Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs to wage information warfare. According to the industry news site PR Week, the initiative was launched by an anonymous figure who allegedly founded a Ukraine based public relations firm. From the first hour of the war, we decided to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to help them distribute the official sources to show the truth, the nameless figure told PR Week. This is a hybrid war, the mix of bloodily struggling fight with a huge disinformation and fake campaign led by Russia. Now, that is not very good English, but we'll take it. I think we all get the point. They believe that the actual events on the ground and what's happening are only one part of the story. The other part is making sure that those actual events aren't known at all and we only have the story. 
According to the anonymous figure, more than 150 public relations firms have joined the propaganda blitz. A hundred and fifty PR firms all working together to give the public in the West a false story about Ukraine or an unverifiable story, let's say. The international effort is spearheaded by public relations firm PR Network co-founder Nikki Regazzoni and Francis Ingram, a top public relations consultant with close ties to the UK's government. Ingram previously worked for Britain's Conservative Party, sits on the UK Government Communications Service Strategy and Evaluation Council, is chief executive of the International Communications Consultancy Organization, and leads the membership body for UK local government communicators, LG Comms. We've been privileged to help coordinate efforts to support the Ukrainian government in the last few days, Ingram told Provoke Media. Agencies have offered up entire teams to support Kyiv in the communications war. Our support for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine is unwavering and will continue for as long as needed. With an anonymous Ukrainian figure joining two of the top public relations figures in the Kyiv government's propaganda blitz, Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs distributed a dossier folder with materials instructing public relations agencies on key messages, approved language, content for debunked propaganda constructs, far-right, and neo-Nazi propaganda. The folder is run by Yaroslav Turbo, described on his LinkedIn page as head of Ukraine.ua, Ukraine's digital ecosystem for global communications, strategic communications, and country brand promotion. Turbel has worked at multiple civil society organizations closely linked to the U.S. government and interned at Internews, a U.S. intelligence-linked organization that operates under the guise of promoting press freedom. Among the propaganda constructs distributed in the dossier is a video of the Snake Island incident, which was quickly proven false, in which Ukrainian border guards stationed on a small island were reported to have been killed after they told an approaching Russian warship that had urged them to surrender, go F yourself. President Zelensky held a press conference announcing he would award the men the Hero of Ukraine medal as mainstream media spread the story widely. However, the supposedly dead soldiers quickly turned up alive and well, proving their heroic stand to be a farce. Despite the story being proven as fake, the dossier contains a propaganda video promoting it. Another folder in the dossier is run by Ukrainian MFA graphic artist Dasha Podoltseva and contains hundreds of propaganda graphics submitted by artists in Europe and the United States. Some feature generic no war messages, while dozens of other images celebrate the ghost of Kiev, a heroic Ukrainian pilot who turns out to be non-existent and the phony Snake Island 13 incident. Many use xenophobic and racist language, and some are explicit in their praise of prominent Ukrainian neo-Nazis, including C-14 leader Yevon Karas, the right sector fascist paramilitary and the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Multiple images call for Banderite smoothies, a reference to Molotov cocktails named for the late OUNB commander Stefan Bandera, who collaborated with Nazi Germany in the mass murder of Jews and ethnic Poles during World War II. 
Another image depicts a book titled The Encyclopedia of Incurable Diseases, listing Russia, Belarusia, North Korea, Syria, and Eritrea. And the article shares a bunch of the propaganda. And you've got to remember, if you're doing a propaganda campaign like this, they want to appeal to all sorts of different audiences. I talk often about how the central narrative exists, and then you've got MSNBC and Fox, for instance, representing opposite sides of the central narrative. The viewpoints in general, the story is not in opposition from each side. It's just marketed to different groups of people. There are some people who like the Fox News version of the central narrative. There are other people who like the MSNBC version of the central narrative. But ultimately, both sets of people will end up believing largely the same things. They'll think that their disagreements are much bigger than they are while largely agreeing. And they will not understand at all that the real disagreement in the world is between their position and the truth. The dossier also contains a link to a Ministry of Foreign Affairs page called Fight for Ukraine, which provides instructions for foreigners who wish to join Ukraine's neo-Nazi infested armed forces, termed the International Defense Legion of Ukraine. Following Zelensky's call for foreign fighters to form a brigade, fighters from all over the world, including the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, Spain, Colombia, Brazil, Chile, and more, have traveled to face Russian forces. Others with no combat training or experience have arrived for war tourism, what one British soldier called bullet catchers, and what our media likely calls, the Russians are attacking civilians. While the Ukrainian government says tens of thousands have answered their call, some commentators express doubt at those figures, calling it a PR exercise. And once again, that's probably the right take. The idea that there's these massive foreign legions of concerned citizens flooding into Ukraine is ridiculous. We basically have Ukrainian Nazis, foreign mercenaries and intelligence assets over there. However, the foreigners who have traveled to Ukraine have encountered a much more severe reality than they anticipated. Russia's Air Force bombed military installations adjacent to where the foreign fighters were sleeping. Having fled to neighboring Poland, a Spanish fighter described the bombing as a message that could have killed thousands. Similarly, an American fighter who hid in an ambulance to escape the front lines warned, that Ukrainian authorities were killing foreigners who decided not to fight, calling it a trap. But the Ukrainians are the good guys. Just look at the comedic actor. What a good guy. There's no way that he is with the bad guys. I mean, yes, he has Nazi fighters doing all of his dirty work, but he's not with them. They're not run out of Kiev. I mean, they are, but like you just have to disconnect them in your head so that you can tell other people that you stand with Ukraine. One document inside the dossier delineates acceptable language on the conflict with Russia, as determined by the Ukrainian government. Such Russian cliches like referendum in Crimea or will of the people of Crimea are absolutely unacceptable, the document states, in reference to the 2014 overwhelmingly successful referendum to separate from Ukraine. And that's weird. They had a referendum in Crimea. Crimea wanted to leave Ukraine. Vladimir Putin didn't violently annex them. He didn't steal back part of the Soviet Union. 
gosh, this is so strange. The document deems unacceptable the terms civil war in Donbass, internal conflict, conflict in Ukraine and Ukrainian crisis to describe the Ukrainian military's war with the breakaway publics of the Donbass region. This, despite the fact that the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights estimates that 14,200 people, including 3,404 civilians, have been killed in internal fighting in Ukraine since 2014. In place of these phrases, the document calls for the use of the terms armed aggression by the Russian Federation in Donbass, international armed conflict, Russian war against Ukraine, Russian-Ukrainian conflict and armed conflict. And this is one of those moments where you have to recognize that the things you're not allowed to say, that's all coming from somewhere and it's for a purpose. The things that you are not allowed to say are the things that do the story harm, that do the narrative harm. That's why you're not allowed to say them. If you are being censored, then what is happening around you is a propaganda campaign. They are not only presenting a false reality, but they are preventing people from accessing truth. There are two sides to the propaganda, two sides to the censorship. And I actually forgot to mention this yesterday when I was talking about how Spotify had taken down an episode of mine on the Ukrainian bio lab. They're not only censoring me, okay? Everybody has to understand this. They are censoring your ability to get information. And they do it in very subtle ways. If I didn't tell you that my episode from March 9th had been taken down by Spotify and you listen to podcasts on Spotify, you would just think that I missed that day, that I didn't put up an episode. You don't realize that you are getting the product of censorship. So the question then becomes, what else are you missing? What else is being censored? And then the question for you becomes, how long will you remain on a platform that censors information and makes it so that you can't fully inform yourself in the way you like to? Another document titled Key Messages contains specific propaganda claims that were widely disseminated in mainstream Western media, but which have since been discredited. One section claims, quote, the entire Europe was put on the brink of a nuclear disaster when Russian troops began shelling the largest in Europe Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. However, International Atomic Energy Agency's director general, Rafael Mariano Grossi, said that the building hit by a Russian, quote, projectile at Zaporozhia was not part of the reactor but instead a training center. Russian troops also left Ukrainian workers to continue operating the plant. Another section thanks Turkey for the decision, quote, to block the access of Russian warships to the Black Sea, end quote. However, Turkish President Recep Erdogan closed the Bosphorus and Dardanelle Straits to all military vessels, preventing both NATO and Russian vessels from accessing the Black Sea. Among the document's key messages is a statement of gratitude to the anti-war demonstrations held by citizens of many nations throughout the world, demonstrate strong support to Ukraine in defending against Russia. 
This refers to large pro-Ukraine demonstrations in Europe, which have featured calls for the U.S. and NATO to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine and shoot down Russian military aircraft, potentially transforming the conflict into a world war between nuclear armed powers. Despite Russia's propaganda, there is no discrimination based on the race or nationality, including when it comes to the crossing of the state border by foreign citizens, claims the Ukrainian document. However, numerous videos and reports have documented Ukrainian authorities preventing Africans from fleeing the fighting. Even the New York Times, hardly a bastion of Kremlin propaganda, published a report documenting these racist practices. One message says that on 16 March, the Russian forces dropped a bomb on the drama theater where up to 1300 civilians were being sheltered. The number of casualties is still unknown. However, as Max Blumenthal reported, the explosion appears to be the result of a false flag operation designed by the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and aimed at triggering a NATO intervention. Another anonymously penned investigation shows how Ukrainian public relations firms have used targeted advertisements to astroturf Russian Internet and social media networks with messaging calling to economically isolate Moscow and stop the war. This effort is led by Bezlepin Evgeny Vitalievich, who uses the alias Evgeny Korolev, along with Pavel Antonov of the Targetorium organization. From behind his Korolev pseudonym, the Ukrainian information warrior composed a post on his Facebook page, now private, boasting that his firm's Facebook ads achieved 30 million hits in three days. At the same time, Facebook has blocked Russian state-owned media outlets from running ads and monetizing content. Several fake accounts for media outlets like Russia 24 have sprung up, burying the authentic account under a series of imposters. Facebook has also marked statements from Russian officials, including the Ministry of Defense, as false. And what you have there is a global corporation taking it upon themselves to take sides in a war and become part of the propaganda mechanism. This is the same Facebook who is funding election fraud and censoring American citizens. The magnitude of criminality inside the big tech organizations is hard to even imagine. This campaign has reportedly been carried out upon recommendation from Stop Fake, a self-described fact-checking outlet that is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, Atlantic Council, Czech and UK Foreign Ministries, and the International Renaissance Foundation, which is funded by billionaire George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Stop Fake was hired by Facebook in March 2020 to, quote, curb the flow of Russian propaganda, end quote but was found to be employing multiple figures closely tied to violent neo-Nazis. The journalist who co-authored the expose received death threats and ultimately fled Ukraine. Those revelations have apparently not prevented Facebook from relying on the organization for censorship guidance. Meanwhile, Russian hackers located a public Google document since made private, but uploaded in this article detailing the propaganda operation, which has been distributed in telegram channels of creative farms. Here you can find links to Ukrainian media that need promotion, bot accounts with logins and passwords from which anti-war messages and messages with fakes about the Ministry of Defense were sent to users. 
theses and specific instructions on which posts and which audiences to embroider. The investigation reads. Now, I don't know what embroider means in that context, but all right. Another campaign is run by Natalia Popovich, the founder of the public relations agency One Philosophy in Kiev. Popovich's LinkedIn profile shows she has worked with the U.S. State Department and advised former President Petro Poroshenko. She is also co-founder and board member of Ukraine Crisis Media Center, a propaganda arm funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, the National Endowment for Democracy, the U.S. Embassy and NATO, among others. Isn't that great? These international bodies, including the United States and George Soros, helping to fund and supply Ukrainian propaganda. Gosh, what a world we live in. Thank goodness our country is making sure that they control what we believe. A Campaign Asia article profiles several public relations firms involved in the effort. Among them is Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman PR. Edelman is also a member of the Atlantic Council's Board of Directors and the World Economic Forum. Geopolitics has become the new test for trust. We saw this with the allegations of human rights abuses in Xinjiang and the war between Ukraine and Russia has only reinforced it, he said, linking the U.S. propaganda campaign surrounding China's de-radicalization campaign for Uyghur Muslims. An article in PR Week profiles several figures partaking in what they describe as a PR army that is fighting on the informational front line against Russia's, quote, barbaric genocide of Ukrainians, end quote. Propaganda is the same as real lethal weapons, declares Marta Jumaha, PR manager at healthcare company Better Me. Julia Petrick, head of public relations at MacPaw, offers a list of approved media outlets authored by her colleague, Tetiana Branitska, a former employee of Ukraine's prosecutor general's office. The list includes Russian and English language sources, as well as telegram channels. However, these, quote, verified sources that objectively cover what is happening in Ukraine are anything but independent. Most of them are tied to the U.S. and European governments and billionaire foundations. And they list some of the sources. In English, the trusted sources are these. Vox, the BBC, Politico, the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, The Economist, CNN, and The Guardian. And in Russian language, they have a BBC Russia. That's trustworthy too. Among the telegram channels listed are Radio Svoboda. And Svoboda, of course, is the neo-Nazi party there. While the public relations firms distribute content, CIA cutouts and billionaire foundations run the media outlets they derive it from. At the core of this operation is a project called the Russian Language News Exchange that was the product of a network of opposition media outlets founded in 2016 that operate in post-Soviet countries, as revealed by an investigation by the Russian media agency RIA Fan. In July 2021, a group of journalists flew to Warsaw for media training after being exempted from coronavirus-related restrictions and quarantine orders by, by Poland's top medical authorities. Thank goodness they got those journalists in there. Among the six journalists were Andrzej Lipski, deputy editor-in-chief of Novaya Gazeta, and Yulia Fediv, CEO of Hromadsky 
TV media, one of the most watched networks in Ukraine. Hromadsky's financial reports show it is funded by numerous governments and foundations, including the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Denmark, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the European Endowment for Democracy, and Free Press Unlimited. Silicon Valley billionaire Pierre Omidyar was also involved in creating the outlet. Why is it that they need such an elaborate network of media outlets and media figures and PR firms to tell the rest of the world what's going on in Ukraine? And why do they employ propaganda and censorship to do it? Seems like they must be protecting some kind of international corruption there. And now I'm jumping down a bit for the interest of time because I know this is running long. This article really is worth going through on your own. While public relations firms and intelligence-linked propaganda operations target the public, Washington, D.C. lobbyists are agitating in Congress to extend the war in Ukraine. Daniel Vadich, a registered foreign agent and lobbyist for the Ukrainian Federation of Employers of the Oil and Gas Industry, the largest in Ukraine, is working on behalf of Volodymyr Zelensky to lobby members of Congress to approve more weapons shipments to Ukraine. Now the head of Yorktown Solutions, he previously advised Ted Cruz and Scott Walker's campaigns and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Stingers, javelins, and let's figure out the fighter aircraft issue, he told Politico, claiming Russia is attempting to carry out a genocide and depopulate certain areas of Ukraine. Again, there's absolutely no reason to believe that's true. Vadich also wrote Zelensky's March 16th speech to U.S. Congress, in which he quoted Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, calling for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Now that is insane. What a terrible speech that was, by the way, as well. Ukrainian permanent representative at the United Nations, Sergei Kislitsia's February 23rd speech to the United Nations General Assembly was written by D.C. lobbying firm SKD Knickerbocker Managing Director Stephen Krupen, a former senior speechwriter to President Barack Obama, who worked extensively on Biden's 2020 campaign. And SKD Knickerbocker was also the PR firm that was a liaison between the big tech firms and government organizations like the California Secretary of State's office and the National Association of Secretaries of State. They were the liaison that facilitated the censorship on the big tech platforms of content that the secretaries of state's offices around the country found inconvenient in perpetuating their narrative about election fraud. Well, their narrative was about how safe and secure the elections are. But SKD Knickerbocker was literally on the email unearthed through FOIA by Judicial Watch, where my face appears in a censored post requested to be censored by the California Secretary of State's office. Most prominent among the registered lobbyists promoting Ukrainian government and business interests is Andrew Mack, who also contributed to writing Zelensky's speech to Congress. Mack registered as a lobbyist for Zelensky in 2019 and runs the Washington, D.C. office of Ukrainian law firm Astor's Law. 
The lobbying firm, Your Global Strategy, founded by Shai Franklin, who has been affiliated with numerous Zionist organizations, including the World Jewish Congress and Anti-Defamation League, is also using its influence with local officials in the U.S. Franklin has set up meetings between Kharkiv Mayor Ihor Terakov and U.S. mayors, including Eric Adams in New York City, Michelle Wu in Boston, and Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. Isn't that impressive? How do all of these global communists find one another? Isn't that amazing? A Ukrainian mayor needs relationships with the mayor of New York and Boston and Chicago, all of whom are diehard communists. He is also attempting to set up a meeting between U.S. officials and the mayors of Odessa and Kiev, a media outlet owned by the mayor of Kiev's wife, recently featured a presenter calling for genocide against Russians, beginning with children. Franklin said he's working with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's administration to help set up virtual meetings between the mayors of Odessa and Kiev and U.S. counterparts. Maryland-based lawyer Lucas Jan Kazmarek is also working on behalf of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense to increase U.S. weapons shipments, specifically seeking to arrange shipments of guns from Keltec CNC Industries based in Coca, Florida, to the city of Odessa, Ukraine. Former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, described the network of public relations professionals and lobbyists surrounding Zelensky. These are people around Mr. Zelensky who are like the intermediaries and interlocutors. They've been interacting with the American elites and American media for a long time, he said. McFaul and John E. Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, act as informal advisors to Zelensky. McFaul told Politico that he speaks to Ukrainian government officials probably every day and has, quote, helped them make connections with NBC or MSNBC producers. McFaul recently told MSNBC's Rachel Maddow that, quote, Hitler did not kill German speaking people and has faced accusations of Holocaust denial. Zelensky also held a strategic video call with McFaul before he spoke to House Democrats. With a powerful Russian military fighting alongside DPR and LPR forces, the Ukrainian military's defeat seems to be imminent unless the United States and NATO directly confront Russian forces, a scenario President Biden has already ruled out. Lobbyists nevertheless persist in their campaign to portray the Ukrainian military as underdogs, scoring blow after blow against the Russian hordes. In doing so, they help extend the war and continue the carnage. Now, consider the big picture of all this. We are getting a story about what's happening in Ukraine. You can see the network of organizations involved in crafting this story and propagating the story, even though it's entirely false. All of those organizations connect directly back to the globalist organizations, the global communist organizations like the Atlantic Council and the World Economic Forum, and George Soros's Open Society Foundation. And it turns out that they're all doing that for the exact reason I've been describing for weeks, as have many others. 
that all of those same global communist organizations have corrupt interests in Ukraine that they need to protect. That is what all of this is about. It couldn't possibly be any clearer at this point. Now you know who's creating the story about all of this. And it's a good thing that Jen Psaki got her 16th bout of COVID this week. So she's out of work and hasn't been able to address the press at all, not to answer questions about any of this Ukraine nonsense, and certainly not to answer questions about Katanji Brown Jackson. Their entire narrative is falling apart day by day, and now they're barely even trying anymore. All they have left is propaganda and censorship and maybe weapons of mass destruction, but let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Tomorrow, I have an episode going up. I interviewed my good friend, Josh Lacache, host of the Wrong Opinion podcast. He just recently had his Patreon banned for daring to appear on InfoWars and say the things he always says. So I'll have that up for you tomorrow. Otherwise, I'll be back Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!